Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. My name is Stephanie James Wilson, and as you know, I'm the Executive Director of the New Jersey Amistad Commission, and my purpose here today um, with you teachers is to allow you all to have um, a little bit more tangible evidence of the importance of our history across the curriculum paradigm, to allow you to really learn about the more expansive stories and to lesser-known historical facts as well as legal precedents that affect specifically minority communities and one that will really, I think, be very expansive in regards of your curriculum initiatives and in regards of how you talk about um, the extensions of slavery with your students. But uh, our purpose today is to really give you a different paradigm, a shift in regards to your thinking, in regards to the extensions of slavery, the legalized extensions of slavery, uh, particularly the, the constructs and the loophole of the 13th Amendment. Um, of course, the 13th Amendment that we all review with our students stipulates that slavery or involuntary servitude is abolished in all places except for when when someone is duly convicted of a crime. And we have all learned of the history of African Americans and the criminal justice system. We've all learned about how that caveat in which we talk about how minority populations in this country are most effectuated by that clause. Um, and we look at those extensions throughout Reconstruction and, and through the 20th century. We're going to do, today discuss the whole idea of peonage. Now, I know it's a term and a subject that is not often covered in our curriculum. It's not often covered with our students. And there's a wonderful documentary that has been out um, and has been produced by one of our guests that's here with us today um, that is really elucidating this whole idea of the peonage structure in our country. Um, I really want you to be able to digest this information, to be able to really think about how it will expand your lesson planning and your discussions in regards to involuntary servitude, um, the extension of our prison systems, and also how a punishment of a crime for capricious and sometimes arbitrary things can be used to justify extensions of slavery well into the 20th century for minority populations. With us today we have Sam Pollard. Um, world-renowned filmmaker and filmmaker for the film Slavery by Another Name that we will be discussing. And also this film, of course, is based on the book that I have given to you all for to add to your school libraries by Mr. Blackman. And also Gloria Brown Marshall, um, a constitutional law professor from John Jay University who has done an extensive amount of work on African Americans and the Constitution, looking at caseload, fact, history, and also the context of African-American referenced in the Constitution. 
So I really would allow you all to just enjoy the film and also enjoy the discussion that we are present here today. And really think about, as this commission is really asking you to extend your curriculum initiatives, to begin to think about how this can be included in your K-12 initiatives in your respective classrooms. Thank you. And we came up with a proposal and a budget of approximately about $1.3 million, and we applied for a major grant uh, to the National Endowment of Humanities. And uh, in 2010, we were given $750,000, uh, and then we raised the other money from different foundations and fraternities and sororities, and we started pre-production, or pre-production in the fall of 2010. And then in 2011, in January, February, from January through June, I went to uh, Atlanta, I went to Alabama, I shot in New Jersey, I interviewed a lot of people you see in the film, David Levin Lewis, amongst the others, uh, and we shot in Alabama reenactments that you saw in the film, and we edited, we edited the film in the spring and summer of 2011, and it was on PBS in February 2012, and right before that, we were invited to the uh, Sundance Film Festival. And you know, I've done lots of documentaries about African American history, Rise on the Prize, The Rise and Fall of Jim Crow, uh, to a series called I'll Make Me a World about African American artists. But I found this one to be one of the most important that I've ever done. And I think one of the things that makes this film stand out from among the other films I've done is that in this particular film that you don't usually see in other historical documentaries, documentaries we had people who had descendants, who were descendants, both black and white, who were able to come on, on screen and sort of tell their family story and recognize, particularly the white descendants, the horrors of their ancestors. And uh, it was in an interesting way, it was a turning point for the film, because initially I had made this with the idea of having descendants in the film. But through Doug's persistence and the persistence of our executive producer, Captain Allen, they persuaded me and interviewed some of these people. And, I really think it really paid off. And, uh, and I think this is a film that should be shown through schools, from middle school to university. I think it's a very important film, a very important part of American, I want to emphasize those two words, American history. I just, I just wanted to um, go back to my area of legal history. And so... What happens in a country that's the most litigious country on the planet, in which we have lawsuits for stealing McDonald's coffee in the lab, to anything else that could possibly happen, and we have attorneys to do all of those things. Sometimes we don't look at the role of law or the so-called rule of law. Some of the younger people will be going on to law school, and you might have those plans, you might know other people in your lives, you know, the teachers who are lawyers, or maybe you have that aspiration. But the practice of law is one thing. The role of law in oppression is another. And what we see throughout your film is how the laws were changed and manipulated, how the court system was manipulated in order to get these people to be in prison in the first place. So the 13th Amendment has in it that caveat, except for conviction. And so then the black codes were put in place that were referred to, and those were the codes for loitering and trespass, et cetera. But consider this, after slavery ended 
Alabama to Georgia or by foot in search of, so you might be stopping at a cabin here and there, have you seen my daughter? She was about this tall, and the last time I saw her, her hair was like this. It's almost like the reverse of a wanted poster for a safe place. And now that same person is being held as someone who's trespassing or loitering because they're first, they're not working for a white person. That's what it is for. He's working for a white person. And the other side of that is you don't have a job or you're on your way passing through. So it's bad enough the families have been torn apart and you're in search of your family and now these black codes that have been put in place, specifically as your son pointed out, to criminalize black behavior. So whatever anyone else was doing, if a person of color, a black person did it, then it could be a crime because they needed that labor. Also to rebuild the South because when General Sherman came through the South, you know, of course, you know, he burned Atlanta, but he devastated everything. He was a general for the Union Army and said, we're just going to go in and destroy everything possible. So they had to rebuild the South. The 14th Amendment um, gives black people um, the, the right to citizenship at birth and equal protection due process. But if you go to the last section of the 14th Amendment, people rarely read, and actually it's the 1868 for the 14th Amendment, but people rarely read that section. It says the federal government is not going to reimburse the South for any losses that occurred during this war. So remember, Lincoln had already emancipated the slaves in the South. Those slaves, those enslaved people, were of a certain cost. They, they were collateral. They used to sell off a slave in order to earn extra money. So they then said, we're not going to reimburse you for your lost property in the enslaved Africans, nor are we going to reimburse you for any of the destruction. And General Sherman and the rest of the Army is going, now we burn down any home, burn down any cabins, so they would kill the cattle. So now the South has lost the enslaved labor they had, but they've also lost, you know, their, their crops. They would burn the crops. They've lost everything. And so in that uh, 14th Amendment, the fourth stanza saying we're not going to reimburse anything, in many ways, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to see how they justify this, but their mindset is we've got to rebuild. And we found this labor, and we're going to use this labor to rebuild. And so, and, and, and as you said before, we go from having, I mean, in your film, a person having the value of this microphone, then having equal rights voting rights, equal protection, and all the rights we have in, in a, a very short period of time. The last thing I wanted to touch on is the way that laws, the, the federal government attempted to use the law to protect the, the free Africans in America who now become African-Americans. They passed anti-Ku Klux Klan Act because the Ku Klux Klan had started um, and Nathan Forrest, who had been a general in the Civil, the, the, during the Civil War for the Confederate Army, was known for his butchery of African um, soldiers. So Nathan Forrest was the one who began the Ku Klux Klan. And if you go back and you find Fort Pillow, and the, the, what happened basically was a battle, and at the end, this battle was one in which the um, Confederate soldiers overwhelmed the Union soldiers, and when they did, they found these black soldiers who then gave themselves up. They were using, of course, um, what they thought was the game of war or the rules of war in which if you are being taken prisoner, you lay down your weapons and you give yourself up, you raise your hand. And when Nathan Torres saw that what he had captured were black,
soldiers in Union uniforms who had actually been firing on his soldiers. He was so irate, he had all of them killed. Now, they claim that this was, you might have already studied this, you know, earlier, but they, they claimed that it was, in, you know, he didn't order them killed, that the soldiers just did it, and he didn't, like, he went to, like, Macy's and came back or something, but, you know, and then, then they were dead. <laughs> but they also had, like, a, a mass burial. So it's like, I guess he didn't walk out that either. It's an extra holiday sale. They were gone for a long time. But he happened to be enough. So this, this whole idea of then they tried to prosecute him, and once again, they used, they used the law to attempt to do what's right and then lack the moral courage to follow through, as we see with the film. This has happened again and again. And as we go through, by the end, I really want to um, connect this with the prison industrial complex today. So, I, 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 mean, I mean, one of the things that I found, one of the things that I found completely frustrating was the fact that the federal government would step up and step back, step up and step back, step up and step back. I mean, if someone doesn't feel the constitutional law, what does that mean? That the, that the federal government never seems to want to really take the bullseye on? It's because they're politicians, and they want to be reelected. And as has been pointed out, you know, when, when Lincoln said, if I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would. So it wasn't that he had a heart of gold, but he was a practical person. And he knew the way this, the, the, country, the country was divided in this manner, half enslaved and half not, couldn't survive. And so at the end of the day, he made a very practical political, you know, solution. And the solution was, I'm going to free these particular Africans in the South. That will now undermine the southern um, economy, but it would also give soldiers to the Union Army. So it helped both ways. It's a very practical solution to this. And, but, the, but the concern I have is the change in the political climate when he was assassinated, then Johnson comes in and Johnson wants to appease the South, and that's when we leave, you know, the, the Africans basically out vulnerable because he's taken away the soldiers who are protecting them and ending reconstruction. So we start off early on with um, the Anti-Cooper Plan Act and then the Civil Rights Act. You think of the 1964 Civil Rights Act as the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act began in the 1860s, and they began in the 1860s because the federal government knew the state governments were not going to protect the rights of the free Africans. They knew it. They, the federal government knew that the sheriffs and the local law enforcement would not protect those rights. They knew the courts would not uphold those rights. So they had an overlay of federal civil rights laws that were put in place to protect blacks who wanted to vote, to protect blacks against um, oppression and terrorism against the Ku Klux Klan. They had those provisions, those provisions placed in there. The concern, once again, is then they lost the political will. Because as the smaller legislation began to um, enact the Black Code, that led to Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. So when Plessy versus Ferguson happened, and you know the story of Plessy, of course you do. He was an octoroon, Plessy was, Homer Plessy was an octoroon, and he was a civil rights activist in New Orleans. They had civil rights activists before Thurgood Marshall. So he was a civil rights activist back then. And they, they saw these 
segregation laws being put in place. They saw these Phoenix things, they saw all these things happen, and they wanted to step up and do something about it. So, Jesse decided he was going to board a railroad car that was intrastate. It's like these, like, um, it wouldn't be New Jersey, New Jersey, but think of a railroad that, that's just within the boundaries of the state. And so, and in, in boarding that train, he decided he's not going to sit in a designated black section, which was in the front of the train, so all the smoke and the soot from the engine would fly in. They only had a hole in the, in the floor for a toilet. I mean, it was despicable. And the white section was totally different. So he said, I'm going to sit in the white section. Now, he's an Octoroon, and Octoroon means he's one eight flat. So he's so light. And it's like some people are like, I'm so light. Yes, but you have to be able to pass for white, and you could. Not just be light. You know, not in your mind you might look like you think you're almost fast for white. You have to be able to actually go to a clan meet and not be discovered. Kind of <laughs> so now he sits there. The conductor comes in. Somehow, the history tells different stories. The conductor knew who he was. Either by his activism in the community, he knew who he was, and he arrested him. And then Homer Plessy appealed to the rest challenging the segregationist law that separates blacks and whites on the railroad cars. He was told not to follow through with this case. He was told of the nine Supreme Court justices that weren't enough, you need five, in order to overturn these laws. But he said, I'm going to do it anyway. He takes the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's where we get separate but equal from that fancy case. And they decide that they can then segregate by race. They don't have to, but if they want to, they can. And, of course, by then, everybody wanted to. And just to have the effect on voting rights, which I think is very important, because as these people in Kennedy were taken out of the, the social system, they were also taken away from any ability to vote, to change the politicians who were in place, making the laws, creating the segregation of um, um, society. And so from 1896, in 1896, in, I, I believe it was um, Louisiana, there were over 100,000 registered black voters, over 100,000. By 1900, after Session versus Ferguson had been in place, that number was down to a little over 5,000. So once you see how the federal government, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the federal government, now rules these people don't deserve to be in the same space, the same social setting. If everything's a social setting, this is a social setting that would have to be segregated. A theater is a social setting. Black people had to sit at the top and white, you know, and below. Bathrooms are social setting. Even a cemetery was a social setting. There was a black cemetery and a white cemetery. Yes, and actually that's the last segregated place there is. There are still black um, morticians and white morticians. And to the point there were black hospitals and white hospitals. Everything was segregated. We think about it schools and water fountains, but it even had segregated windows. And because what happens, you look out the window and you might say, wow, it looks like it's going to rain. Someone responds, yes, I think so. We've had a social setting. So you can't even look out the same window at the same time. So when you think about how society was segregated and harsh during that time period, then you can better understand when it comes down to the criminal justice system, how they could treat people in this despicable way. Because even people who were free had, and, and, and people of color, not just black, but also um, Native Americans, 
blind eye to the treatment of those people in prison. But you were you were going to talk about the setting of. I mean, I think what happened in the 1880s and the 1890s in the South was the beginning with the incubation for the prison industrial. Uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it was. As a matter of fact, many of you, I'm sure, know about the prison industrial complex and the idea that we have these prisons located in rural communities in which people are work. They work. They might have made this furniture in here, especially since this is a state college, because since they work for the state, yes, they make the furniture for the state, and they have other types of jobs they do. Why isn't it peonage? Why isn't it indentured services? Why isn't it slavery? What do you think? Because they're paid something. Yes, they're paid like 10 cents a day. So if they're paid something, you're not enslaved. So then that makes a difference. Many of you will have this Constitution, and you'll see what's in the Constitution. It's the U.S. Constitution in African-American context. And in this Constitution, I've highlighted and annotated the places within the Constitution referring directly or indirectly to people of African descent. There are more references to people of African descent in the U.S. Constitution than to any other particular group. The three-fifths clause is in Article One of the U.S. Constitution. Under the three-fifths clause, we know that people of African descent were counted as three-fifths of a person to determine the number of representatives in U.S. Congress. They were counted as three-fifths of a person to determine the number of representatives in U.S. Congress. Think about it today. And today the issue we have is African-Americans and other people who are now sequestered in these rural communities, they're counted in the population of those rural communities. So in being counted in those populations, they then increase the resources to those communities. And in increasing the resources, it gives them political power because then they would have more representatives than they normally would have. They would have more state and federal funding. And so we have also oh, gerrymandering. Yes, the gerrymandering. But and now there's there's um, a mechanism in place um, where people are attempting to have those prisoners counted in their local communities as opposed to being counted in the prison communities. But you know, of course that's being fought because why would somebody give up that political power? I, I had a question for you that you don't mind. Sure. Okay. What about parole? or probation. Did you find anything about people actually having parole or probation when it, you know, when it came to the pianist? No. You were just in it or you weren't in it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, the system was built in such a way that, you know, you got arrested, but like say you were looking for, like John Davis was walking through that town. He gets arrested, you know. Someone from the jail of says, we're going to pay his fine, right? But then John Davis has to pay that fine off. How does he pay it off? He's not, you know, it's the money that he's making that he's going to pay off the guy to pay his money, you know. So he never, he, it took him almost two years to get out, to get out from under that system. He could be in there two years, three years, four years, you know. It would take you a long time. There's no such thing as parole. <laughs> well, and, and the Supreme Court, unfortunately, until the 1960s, the Supreme Court was on the wrong side of justice many times. And I say this as someone who studies the Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, I cover the Supreme Court now. And um, the case of Bailey versus Alabama, the 1908 case, 
And in this 1908 case, we have Mr. Bailey who signs a labor contract. And in this labor contract, he receives $15 and or $15 worth of goods and services. And then he's being treated like an enslaved person. He decides he wants to quit. So he says, I'm leaving. He doesn't receive the actual money in hand, but they say that he slept in the bed, he ate the food, he had the shelter. There was a value. We put the value at $15. And so he has been incarcerated because he does not fulfill his labor contract. How do I know about this case? Because it's one of the few Spanish cases that actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this case was decided by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Once again, the Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was supposed to be Mr. Justice himself, he finds in for Alabama. He finds in support of Alabama, and he finds things wrong with the labor contract, but he does not end labor contracts that will end in a criminal sentence if a person does not fulfill the contract. So not only do you have these um, housing contracts, because you have people, if they live in a housing, in, in some form of housing, and they can't pay the amount of money, they are then sent to prison, but also the labor contracts that now criminalize somebody who doesn't want to be enslaved. As a person who's involved in constitutional law, what do you think about the makeup of the court nowadays? I actually read an article yesterday from someone who wants to have Justice Antonin Scalia impeached. If I, in my book, Race, Law, and American Society, I have photographs, and one of the photographs is of a, of a billboard after the Brown v. Board of Education decision in which there's a billboard impeach um, Earl Warren. So this idea of impeaching U.S. Supreme Court justices isn't new. There's only been one justice who's been impeached. Who was that? Who, that was, why do you have to ask me? I was just going to say it, and now you ask me, but it's from that. But but the but the idea is that um, justice is supposed to be objective in many ways, and people are not seeing the U.S. Supreme Court as objective um, as they should be. Um, I have certain concerns about a court that's comprised of justices who have not practiced criminal law, and yet they are making major decisions around criminal law and criminal justice. And that's a concern. I think perhaps the Supreme Court justices are so sequestered, they don't really understand how their decisions affect day-to-day life. Um, and that's what, well, I, want to, I want to give you two examples. One is the Florence case, and this is a New Jersey case. And some of you may be familiar with the case of Florence versus Burlington County. Of course you are. It's the one in which you have Albert Florence who was in this car, and he was picked up. Yes, he was, he was, yeah, the strip search case. He was picked up for a fine he had already paid, and he was taken to a local Burlington County jail. He was strip searched. This African-American male was actually strip searched twice. He was made not only to shower with delighting powder, but he was also made to, to squat, to cough, and many of you guys know what I'm talking about, okay, and ways to reveal whether or not he was hiding anything in any of his cavities. And he had to go through this twice for a non-criminal fine. The U.S. Supreme Court was then asked to rule whether or not 
this was a violation of his Fourth Amendment rights, and they said, the court said no. So now, just like Plessy versus Ferguson, local jurisdictions across the country can strip search anyone who's been detained and put in the general population of their local jail. Anyone, man, woman, or child, may be strip searched. So when I talk about the Supreme Court, what makes me excited about it is the fact that I want other people to watch the court, watch the decisions, and realize that court's decision affects your life. Because at this point, we have the extension of, I have to say it, slave catchers, et cetera, with stop and frisk. Yes. So I would, I'd like, you know, from slave catchers to stop and frisk. New book title. Okay? Because when I'm looking at the, the idea of stop and frisk, it goes back to this sense of we are suspicious of you standing around. We're suspicious of you acting in your own free will, just being able to walk down the street, drive your car, whatever you're doing, you need to be checked. We need to understand that you are not a danger to us. We want to put you in our system, our criminal justice system. If nothing else, put your name in. And the idea of the humiliation, there was an article in the New York Times not too long ago about women who are stopped and frisked by male officers. And their pocketbooks going through. All of this is taking place. For, for teachers, I would like your students to know, don't wait until it happens to you. Understand that this is happening to other people. If we give people the power to let it happen to people of color, pretty soon it's going to get to the other people as well. Law is not race-based on its face anymore. They might draft a law called the Anti-Terrorist Act, we're thinking, oh, it's just for people who look a certain way. The law is on the book and can be expanded to be used against anyone. So we have to keep these things in mind that as we consider the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a third co-equal branch of government that has just as much power as the president, just as much power as Congress, and it's only nine people. And they're not objective. No. I don't As a matter of fact, a recent poll has indicated 40, only 44% of people believe, people polled, believe the Supreme Court is objective. Yeah, they only 44% believe, and that's the lowest rating they've had in the last 25 years. I don't know if there's a list, but, but, but Doug in his research knows of some of the corporations. And, you know, and I think that, you know, some of them are based in Atlanta, like Coca-Cola, you know, some of the banks in Atlanta, they were, you know, their family descendants were involved in, you know, the penal system. So Doug likely knows. He definitely knows, you know. And then, and then the city government. Because that was another way for city government to rebuild after the war, and then they liked it and said, we're going to continue this. And so you have these municipalities, and also the interesting part about the descendants, the white and black descendants, is the fact that I've had many people, you know, concerned about my, my stance on particular issues here or there. Um, but one, one concern that they've had is the laws that have been put in place, for example, from the vaccine that was discussed earlier. The laws have been put in place like a firm of action. You have immigrants who may say, but, but my family wasn't here during that time period, so why should I have to build a firm of action? 
You have people who talk to you even about the penis, the penis system. You know, but my family didn't do it. But to actually see the Senate of the family and see they're doing pretty well because they have the inheritance <laughs> actually um, given to them over time. What was what was earned on the backs of those incarcerated men is now the dowry of the great-grandchildren. I don't see them giving anything back. I'm not saying they have to, but I'm just I'm looking at this. That's the closest example that you can see of how discrimination has gone through generations and benefited generations who can say, I honestly had nothing to do with this. But you still are benefiting from the system. This is a direct way to look at it. Other ways are, are much murkier. But this is one direct way for, for one to see how they have benefited generationally down the line. And there are many, many other ways. But I think it's, it's, it's something that we have to look at. The benefits of some, and, and as I've said, it's like, well, you know, if Brown Board of Education in 1954 spoke of this sense of inferiority that was that should not have been based on the uh, place on the shoulders of black, it should not have been based in reality, then weren't whites given a false sense of superiority? And, are, and if blacks are still carrying this sense of inferiority, are whites still carrying this false sense of superiority? And, and how, I mean, these are things that we have to wrestle with, not just as teachers, but as you see the young people buying into the system. What do you do? If they buy into a false sense of superiority, and you see some people of color buying into, even like, I, I teach at John Day College, so in New York City, I have everybody from all over the world. And I have Asian students who never knew that there was a Chinese Exclusion Act in this country in which Chinese were forbidden to, from being coming to the country and once they were here from being citizens. So this, this whole this whole idea of Asians being a, the model minority, it's like, wow, because you didn't stand up and say something, when actually you did. But they have not taught you the times that Asians, Chinese, and others have stood up, Japanese and others have stood up and protested, nor have they talked about the protests of Native Americans because they want people to be basically docile and believe that black people only want to cause them trouble. Right. <laughs> Someone has to
relatives. So and that evidence. So I think I think it's interesting. I, I really I think our young Harry Tubman's in the room, our young Frederick Douglasses, our young John Brown in the room. I think it's very important that we understand when we talk about race in different ways that there have always been people who were in the oppressed group standing up for what was right. Always. In my book, Race Law in American Society, 1607 to present, I go back to the 1600s. And there were people then, there were white people standing up for those people who were enslaved. There were black people standing up for the Native Americans. You know, there were other people standing up for the Asians. It wasn't just the people in that group standing up, but we'd never get to this point. There's always been people from other groups standing up as well for what was right. And even if some of them lost hearts halfway through or became political cowards, I mean politically uh, um, afraid, then... <laughs> or hung. Oh, yes. John Brown. Yeah, John Brown. Uh-huh. But even when John Brown was, was facing death, he said this was what, this is how he wanted to live his life. He was willing to give his life for that. And I'm not saying people have to give their lives. You don't have to really give your careers. You can be weekend warriors. Yes, and think about that. Be a weekend warrior. But at this point, try to, to play a, plant that seed of activism in the, in the minds of young people you're teaching. I think it's very important because young people made big differences in the civil rights movement all the time. Young people made the differences in, in the movements that changed the country and moved it. I mean, no one person can change the entire country, but as people then work through envisioning what type of country do you want to live in and what kind of country do you want your grandchildren to live in? And many of you are like, grandchildren, wait a minute, I don't even have a steady girlfriend. But but I think it's very important. It's very important to envision a country beyond your generation. That's how we got here. People envision a country beyond their own generation. And we're those people who are the recipients of that, and now it's time for us to envision a country beyond our generation. And these people in Phoenix, it, it breaks our heart, and I think it's something that we owe to them to try to – your film is, is paying homage to them, but – now that we know, we need to do something with the information. I'm Um, racialized women, um, 
so that you'll never be comfortable with your success. So if you think it's just your imagination, it's not. That you'll never be comfortable with your success. And it goes back to that same black code after slavery ended. That you have freedom, but you're never going to be comfortable with your freedom. You're not going to be able to freely walk down the street. Because we have laws in place that will make you always look over your shoulder, always second-guess your freedom. And my concern is we may have some young people who believe freedom is too much trouble. Oh, I said it. You might have some young people who believe it's easier to be incarcerated. Because think about this after slavery. Do they know how to take care of themselves? Do they know how to feed themselves? Do they know how to earn a living? Do they know how to do these things? We don't think so. So we have to now put them in a place where we're still going to take care of them. And we have to keep an eye on them. And that's, as you pointed out, how the uh, prison industrial complex was triggered to always keep an eye on these people because now we can't trust them. And one of those questions goes back to, I think um, someone mentioned it in your, in your film, whether or not people of color, especially African-Americans, were going to seek revenge. Sure. Because the, the slave catchers and others had laws. The, the society jurisdictionally, the society as a whole, but jurisdictionally, they had laws to prevent loitering and groups of black people during slavery because they thought they were going to attempt to escape. That's why those laws were first put in place. You could not have gatherings of black people. In 1831, Matt Turner's um, um, revolt, in which he did kill, not, he killed one or two white people, but they ended up killing over 55 on a, a, a slave um, area in Southampton, Virginia. And I actually went back and went through that slave area, the, the same part of the country, um, a year or so ago. After that 1831 revolt, all the laws changed for the most part to make it impossible for black people to be anywhere on the street alone. Or if they were with a crowd, if they were alone, they had to have a, a note in their pocket saying why they were there. If they were in any group whatsoever, they, the group could not be larger than three, and a white person had to be there at all times. And the idea was to keep another revolt. I think the message of that is what we see now with loitering laws, what we see now with stop and frisk, the idea that we can't trust these people. One, perhaps they don't know what to do with their own freedom. Two, they may be up to no good. And it's not just black people. It was young people. I, I grew up in, in 19... <laughs> 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 at a time when... <laughs>
we can't just say it's just us and not somebody else because we never know once the power gets going, that ball gets rolling, it's going to roll over you then. So we need to understand the same way we was pointed out by the professor that there was the Irish at one point. You know, another point it was people were Jewish. Another point, I mean, in the, as the Italians. This has happened over time. We think, well, now it's Muslim. Like Muslims is a race. You know, you can have Muslims as religion, so that could be anybody. So, you know, and there was one point there was Catholic. So we have to understand that we can't let law just run, run wild, run rampant, because it will run over all of us. We have to have checks and balances. And if we allow these loitering laws to do what it's doing to our young people and other people, um, then I think that um, pretty soon it's going to be out of control. And that's when we'll have other people say, I, I couldn't believe this happened to my son. So, I, I need to, I need to, watch your time, because I know you have somewhere to be in South Marshall. So I guess we're going to try to take questions quickly. If you can answer. Hi, good morning and thank you. So I have a question, and it has to do with a manner of thinking, helping our students do that kind of thinking that you just talked about. So if they're going to be upstanders, one of the things that was really interesting that the movie used was the term famously rational, talking about this brutal system. So a lot of students are going to be equally as famously, well, maybe not famously, but certainly rational, so that they are, can be the upstanders because... Obviously, the paradigm has shifted. No one is, we're, we're not using the same um, model, per se. So now we have, as you mentioned, stop and flips for vagrancy, uh, maybe outsourcing instead of using um, that scanage system. But, but how do we get our students to spot it, to ask the question, the critical question, and have that instantaneous recognition? This is something that we really need to inspect and inspect further because they're not going to see the same thing in the same masquerade. It's going to look a little differently. So how how do we get them now to start to question and then to stand up? Well, I think I think I think for me the, the, the always the challenge when you're educating young people is to make them question everything in terms of this American country and the notion of capitalism. You know, so they need to understand about. You know, for example, that Apple, that we all, all these Apple phones that we have, you know, that this Apple makes their money on people who make these phones in all the places for a penny. You know, they need to understand that the coffee that Starbucks makes, that sells to us, is, is, is made in, by people who in South America who don't make much money. They need to understand that, that this notion of the economics in this country is based on the facts of people, you know, poor people or people of color. You know, so that they say, oh, maybe I can't go to Starbucks anymore. Maybe I need to understand about where the automobile comes from. They need to understand that there's never just something that's in your hand and say, oh, it's a great bottle of water, or it's a great bottle of soda, oh, I love my song. You know, but what, what does that mean to turn people who make these things, you know? Because America does that. America, you know, we live in a country and a culture here that is always about things, things, things. And people don't understand that to get to these things, there are people around the world who suffer. Who suffer. But you have to make people, just make young people aware and understand that. 
and I watch the Holocaust movie, the Holocaust film, yeah. and I'm quite sure people of Jewish descent or people who practice Jews and help us hear the culture see it as a group of people who were targeted. Yeah. They were targeted because they looked a certain way because they had certain last names. And I say the reason why I took over the people do is because some people don't practice their religion. And yet, yes, and yet they're grouped up in that group too. And so I'm sure when they see those those films, they see those movies, and they hear about the destruction that took place then, I'm sure it's an emotional thing for them. They, they have a number of feelings that they have to get through to the other side. And when they show those films later to younger people, they those younger people then go through and ask the question, why does this happen to us? Why does it kick up? Why do they do this? I think it's right and it's good for people to feel the pain and go through it. And get to the other side. I think one of the problems we have in this country is trying to stifle all these emotions. Yeah. We're not going to deal. We're not going to deal with it. We've never had a truth and reconciliation commission on what has happened in this country. We just want to like cover it up and keep on going. And we, you know, we're like, oh, we don't want to hurt the feelings of white people, especially the white people say I had nothing to do with it. But I inherited this country, and so did you. I didn't do anything. You didn't either. I can't hear the crowd. We're all in this together. And what I tell my students in my raising the law class is this is what we inherited as a country, as a history. And we have to deal with it. Race is like religion is in the Middle East. You know, this is what we have. This is going to be it. We, and it's a chronic disease. And it's just like diabetes. If you don't check the diet and your insulin level, you can get very, very sick. This country needs to check where we are when it comes to race, and we're in a bad place right now. And we're not talking about it, we're not checking it. Those young people need to understand also that many black people stood up and did tremendous things they get no credit for. We're the only people that I know of who rose from this place of despair under law to the highest degree of pain so far, especially for a period of time, in the country of their oppression. Other people that go to other countries to find a new way. We did it here in the country of our own oppression. I, I think I think that's important thing to say. I mean, I think there's a way a way to deal with the fact that young people will be angry and frustrated. It's have a dialogue. Have a dialogue, so they can explore and express their feelings. You know, and maybe by exploring and expressing their feelings, it can channel with what she was saying about becoming active, becoming active. That's the important thing about watching this film. After this film, just don't let it stop with people being angry, mm-hmm. just doing their own energy. But have a dialogue, you know. Have a dialogue where they can get out and feel it. They can understand. They don't have to be angry at all white people. I mean, I, you know, I work a lot of these films. I get angry all the time, but I'm not angry at all white people. Right. You know, I'm angry at the way that society has established the rules of the rules of the world. Yeah, and then also I wanted to, to get you some active there, particular things they can do. This is an election year. Work on voter registration. Yes. Can, yes, work on work in the community. Volunteer. You know, there are things they can do to say, I want to make this society better. I don't want to sit here and do. We don't want people turning into somebody who says, I'm going to go out and do bad things to myself. I'm going to be self-destructive or I'm going to be destructive to other people because I'm just enraged. 
I don't need that kind of person because they'll get me over here too. They can go blind with anything. I don't know what they're doing. I don't need that person wandering around here. I need someone who's channeling that. I, even in my book, I see sometimes when I write about these cases of injustice time and time again, I kind of take a walk around the block and come back to this. And, and I think that these are the judges. And I have to do a Supreme Court cases. And time and time again, the court has let us down. What the court is doing right now is crazy. Do you know that Chief Justice Roberts is in hiding, they say? Yeah. Because he voted the way he felt he should on the health care case. What's going on in this country when it comes to law and abuse and abuse of law? It's something we all have to participate in. Because I'm going to say this. When it comes to stopping when it comes to what these young people are going through, because many of them have been stopped five, six, seven, ten times already by the police, already by some of 16 years old, we need to understand we're creating little time bombs. So then when they see the film, it's like, what I want them to say is, this didn't start with me. That's too much weight for a young person to have on their shoulders. This didn't start with me. This is a system of injustice, and they need to work to fight against that system and not work to self-destruct or fight any individual person. But there are things that they can do to channel that in the future. My story goes on the uh, notion of affirmative action and uh, what Dr. Wilson was talking about, the deconstruction of race. So, um, like, in order to stop or in order to not continue these, this, like, systematic process in which one group uh, gets an advantage over another group, um, we have to sort of deconstruct this idea of race. We have to eliminate these notions of race. Um, doesn't affirmative action, which is a seemingly good excuse me, uh, affirmative action, which is seemingly good policy, hold on to this very notion that we're trying to deconstruct and then eliminate the notions of? Well, I think that's a great question. Here's where I kind of differ with the professor. I like being black. I do. I like being a person of African descent. I don't see any, I don't see a problem with race, of being racial groups, if that's you want to be in a racial group. I see people denigrating people because they are in a particular racial group is a problem. And that's why I go to the sense of, if I, don't, I had a friend who was black, and, and I don't see maybe because of the fuck, this, this, the fuck, this, this, the fuck, this, 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 if you are into who you are, you don't have to denigrate someone else. And I think that's what's gotten lost, is the idea that we can't be in the group. I'm tall. They're going to admit to be tall people. Then what? What do you want from me? You know, you're, I am a person of color. I enjoy my color. Looks darn good when I'm not a tired. My, my, concern, my concern is that I want us to learn how to be our own selves. And that's something we have to learn. It seems like right out of the womb, the first thing we do is start a competition. And then we start the hierarchy. And we have to figure out how we have to be better than someone else. What I like in the Olympics, people are running there. They get there, somebody won because they were the best that particular day. But that doesn't mean all people who came in first that day are going to be the best runners always. And I think we brought into this notion that certain people can always be in the top of the class. Certain people can always be number one. 
And that's knowing that certain stuff. Going back to affirmative action, um, I wrote an op-ed piece for CNN. And um, in the op-ed piece, I spoke about the issue of affirmative action being an inherited version for all of us. I cannot be the only one arguing about affirmative action because we see the issue. Now, are we still called for affirmative action because we have to give something up? So you just want leaders to have a version of history. See, this is where the concern is. This is American history. Why am I the only one carrying the burden of, of what happened in this That's what I want people to think about. The burden should only to not only be on the shoulders of, of black people. The burden is an American burden to be spread across. And for people who are immigrants, as I pointed out before, they said, well, I had nothing to do with that. I said, yes, but you are now part of this country. And this is this country's history. If you lose to Israel, you would have the Israeli history and the Israeli legacy. Whatever country, if you move to India, you would have India's history and India's legacy. If you move to Russia, and so forth and so on. If you move to Russia, you have the history of Gulag. So whatever country you immigrating into, you can't be in a little bubble that says, I, I, the country starts when I got here. <laughs> you know, the country was in place, it's going to continue to be in place, you get absorbed into it. And you and I inherited this country at first, you inherited when you arrived. <laughs> but we all have it. And, this is, and now what are we going to do about it? How are we going to make it a better place? We can't ignore it by saying affirmative action, it means that that's the birth of discrimination. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't either. So we have to decide how we move forward in just saying that racism is going to disappear by ignore affirmative action. That's not going to do it either. So we have to come up with something better, much better than ignoring affirmative action. I so, can I? So I think. Um, Bring it to a close. I want to, I want to thank Mr. Pollard, Tim Pollard, and